chromosomes. Little strands of nucleic acids and proteins are the fundamental genetic instructions that tell us who we are at birth. Most people are born with 46 chromosomes, but each year in the United States, about 6,000 people are born with an extra chromosome, making them a person with Down syndrome. If you've ever encountered someone with Down syndrome, you know that they are some of the kindest, most joyful people you will ever meet. They truly have something extra. My name is Lisa Nichols, and I have spent the last 24 years as both the CEO of Technology Partners and as the mother to Allie. Allie has something extra in every sense of the word. I have been blessed to be by her side as she impacts everyone she meets. Through these two important roles as CEO and mother to Allie, I have witnessed countless life lessons that have fundamentally changed the way I look at the world. While you may not have an extra chromosome, every leader has something extra that defines who you are. Join me as I explore the something extra in leaders from all walks of life and discover how that difference in each of them has made a difference in their companies, their families, their communities, and in themselves. Today, we welcome Dan Isom to the show. Dan is Executive Director of the Regis Commission and is the retired St. Louis, Missouri Chief of Police. Dan, I am so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for making the time. I know you're incredibly busy, but I'm honored to have you. It's great to be here. And the second thing I want to say is just thank you so much for your public service. You have been a public service person your whole career, and so I'm excited to talk about that today as well. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. So let's just jump in because we've got a lot of things that I want to talk about today, but let's just start by telling us just a little bit about how you grew up. So uh, a little bit about myself. I grew up in St. Louis, North St. Louis, which a lot of people hear in the news today, and unfortunately, sometimes it's... uh, associated with negative stories. But when I grew up in North St. Louis, it was a predominantly middle-class African-American neighborhood. Everyone walked to school, played outside, had a lot of friends. And, you know, most houses had two-parent families. And my mother was a teacher. My father was a firefighter. And then he later on became a facilities director for Parkway School District. And and was involved in, in politics a little bit in the city of St. Louis as well. So I had a pretty typical upbringing in North St. Louis. Went to Catholic schools. Actually, I started in public grade school mm-hmm. in kindergarten and half of first grade. And then my parents moved us to a Catholic school, St. Engelbert, very good school. And then I was very involved in sports growing up, so I uh, played a lot of baseball, football, and what a lot of people don't know is I played hockey as well. Oh, wow. So people look at me today and say, oh, he's 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, Obviously, he <laughs> played basketball, but I never Didn't played play baseball. basketball. I only played it as pickup, but I was really big into hockey. So I started playing hockey, I think, when I was five or six years old and played hockey through high school. Like I said, grew up in North St. Louis, and then um, after... Grade school, I uh, went to St. Louis University High School, uh, went there for four years and played football and played hockey there, and then ultimately uh, went to Howard University, which is in Washington, D.C., which is a historically black college in Washington, D.C. 
curiously enough, that the founder of Howard University was Major Howard, who fought in the Battle of Gettysburg. Rich history. A lot of history in in Howard University. And then came back here and started going to UMSL. I guess after being at Humsville for about a year, I decided to go on the St. Louis Police Department. Okay. All right. So that's how I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, Howard University, that's interesting. I've got a really good friend in Chicago, and her daughter chose Howard. There is a rich history there. It yeah, like. it's, it's an outstanding university yeah. founded just after the Civil War, and a lot of prominent people have come out of Howard. So talk to us. That kind of leads us up, and I, and I had said at the beginning, thank you so much for your public public service because you've been in public service your whole career. You've done so many cool things, and I want to dive into as much of that as we can, but but what inspired you to become a police officer, Dan? Well, I've said this many times before. I wasn't necessarily focused on being a police officer from the beginning, but I do say that public service, I think, was in my blood because my mother was a teacher, a mm-hmm. St. Louis public school teacher for, I think, 40 years. So, you know, serving the community for extremely long time. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was a firefighter, I think, for 10 years or so. And then he left the fire department and began working for the city of St. Louis. He was a sort of a political figure in St. Louis. He was a 27th Ward Committeeman okay. uh, for St. Louis. And then ultimately he, he worked for about 20 years at the Parkway School District. So, so you grew up seeing that... It was not about you. Right. It was about what you could do for your fellow man, right? Absolutely. I mean, from your mom and your dad's example. Yeah, for both of my mother and, and father. So, as I said, it's, it was kind of in my blood. And even when I started college, my major was political science. So, I had this thought process of either going into politics or going to law school. So, one of the two. But um, while I was at UMSL, my sister joined the police department a year ahead of me. So she was on the police department before I came on the police department. And quite frankly, you know, at that point in time in my life, school was not high on the calendar right. in terms of <laughs> <laughs> my <Right>. priorities. Yes. <laughs> so I, I, I think my father was just trying to get both of us out of the house. And, okay. and he was like, okay, uh, you're interested in politics and law. Maybe law enforcement is something that would be interested mm-hmm. to you. Mm-hmm. And obviously he, he made a good choice. He made a good choice. Right. So talk to us about that journey because you started what in 1988? I started in 1988 okay. and as I said my sister was already on the police department but went into the academy in August of 88 and really from the start it was really intriguing to me because it was almost like a team you know on a football team or a hockey team. It was very structured which I, I liked mm-hmm. you know the mm-hmm. academy regiment was very structured and um, I really enjoy the sort of academic, but also the sort of physical and the, the mental part of law enforcement. So the academy at the time was about four months long, and I did really well in the academy. I think um, in terms of academically, I was maybe in the top five or top ten of the class. As we graduated from the police academy, You know, there were a lot of people who wanted to go different places. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to go to a neighborhood that I had grown up in and that I knew very well. And so I had the opportunity. You had the opportunity to pick kind of where you wanted to go. Sure. Or at least give them a suggestion. Right. (laughs) 
give option one, option, option one, two. option two. It was like, so I picked the 8th District. 8th District is an area that I grew up close to um, and knew a lot about. It was great being able to be placed in that neighborhood. Now, at the time, that district had a lot of problems I mean, in 1988. But I, I really enjoyed being there. I felt comfortable there. And it was really the start of my career. Okay. And so you did that. You were a police officer for several years. And then talk to us about what happened next. <laughs> right. I was really lucky in my career to have a lot of opportunities over the course of the 20 years before I became police chief. Several mentors to that exposed me to being a detective, um, I worked in the police academy. I, of course, worked on the street as a supervisor, as, mm-hmm. a, as a manager, and also worked in internal affairs. At 20 years, I actually had gone back to school because I left UMSL to become a police officer. But at that time, in that 20-year span, I had completed my master's degree and also a PhD. And so I was really sort of at this point where, at 20 years, trying to decide what I was going to mm-hmm. do. And the chief at the time decided to step down mm-hmm. or to retire. At that point in time, I really didn't think that I was the person to be chief of police. Really? I actually had never really thought about being chief of police mm-hmm. and really didn't think I had any shot at being chief of police with 20 years on. Because typically in law enforcement, although in most careers 20 years is a long time, in law enforcement from a command level, it's not. It's not that long. You know, most no. people So who, you were, yeah, you were younger in your career I was to young. be a police chief, right? Right. Okay. I was 41 years old, mm-hmm. and the other candidates were all in their mid-50s and had 30-plus years on the police department. But there were a lot of people who were encouraging me, mm-hmm. saying that I think this is your time, I think you're what the police department needs, and... I still wasn't really convinced at the time. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things I, I would encourage everyone to do if, you know, they're faced with, you know, a difficult decision is to really just kind of take a retreat or so to think about why you want to do something. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you can really offer that could make a difference. You know, throughout my education, I had thought a lot about policing, of course, mm-hmm. and written a lot of things. And mm-hmm. so I had a lot of ideas. And so I really wrote out almost a 25-page sort of guide as to what, what I thought. What you would do. What I would do. Were, okay. If I were police Interesting. chief. And as a result of that, I sort of convinced myself. <laughs> I can do this. I can do this. Mm-hmm. I got something to offer. And so I threw my hat in the ring. And, uh, and look what happened. <laughs> and started the process. <laughs> right. So you did become the chief of police. So I did become the chief of police. And, and really that process, that journey all the way through, I think really prepared me for that. You know, all that I had done in the past, the diversity of jobs that I had within the police department. Right. The education The that education you that I had gained, mm-hmm. the relationships that I had fostered, mm-hmm. really gave me a, a guidepost to where I wanted to go. I think October 16th, 2008, I was selected as chief of police and took over at the St. Louis Police Department. So incredible. There's so much packed in there, Dan. I love the fact that you did not think that you even had a chance, you know, and that just shows me your humility. You know, I also love the fact that you took the time. People were encouraging you 
And so you took the time to step back and say, you know, if I were, what would I do? And really taking the time to kind of build that out. And then as you said, you know, after you did that, you're like, yes, I do have something to offer. But I just love you have a servant's heart. You do, Dan, and I love that. Yeah, well, I think that humility really helps you because, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons why I was selected is because I didn't take for granted the opportunity and the responsibility. Right. Um, so you took it seriously. I took it very seriously. Mm-hmm. And in that final interview with the board, you know, really whether I got it or not, I felt I was prepared, mm-hmm. that I had something to offer. Mm-hmm. It was whether they liked it or not, it was up to them. <laughs> But, you know, I think I delivered it with passion and with a lot of thought. And I think that really was the thing that sealed the deal. Well, I love that. There's a lot for people to take away there. So talk to me just a little bit, because, you know, we in in today's world, we have got to be so careful. We can build our culture. Can we not? I mean, you know, the culture is either toxic or it is one where people want to be there and people feel valued and appreciated. But there were core values at the police department. Can you speak into that a little bit? And they weren't just words on the wall. How did you take what you guys had said, here are our core values, and and flesh that out in the day-to-day? Can you talk a little bit about that, Dan? Yeah, so, you know, one of the values, of course, is is leadership. And I think from a law enforcement standpoint, we are really the face of government. I mean, no one interacts, I think, with more government than the police, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're there 24 hours a day. You see us all the time. If something happens, you call us. And so people's perception of what government is about oftentimes come from the police. And we are in that leadership role where we can demonstrate uh, the best parts of government, the best parts of America, really. Right. And so we've got to kind of carry that with us in everything we do. The other part is fairness to all, which is so important in law enforcement. I've always said that our criminal justice system really depends on people trusting the system, right? From the beginning to the end. Most of police work is solved by people engaging in the process. I was an officer for 20 years, and you generally don't see stuff as you're driving around. People call you and they tell you. And so they've had to have trust and confidence that, you know, you're going to You're going to take right that thing. information and do the right thing. Do right? the right thing mm-hmm. with it, right? And mm-hmm. so even you get the information from them and then they may file a report or they may be a witness and then they've got to trust that you're going to follow through with that. They've got to come down and give testimony to the prosecutor. They've got to go to court. Jurors have to have trust that what police officers are saying is true on the stand because oftentimes they're the only person who's given testimony. And so that leadership and fairness to all is so important as core values to police culture. Mm-hmm. Yes, and when people see that demonstrated, yes. that is when the trust barometer goes up, right? Right. And when they see that. Well, very good. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with Dan. Okay. Let's face it, the future is mobile. There's a good chance that you are listening to this show right now on your phone. Have you explored how you can move your business mobile too? 
Our mobile apps team at Technology Partners makes it their mission to move our clients into the hands of their employees and customers and change their business processes to meet the demands of their users. Let's work together and build a dynamic mobile app for your team. Go to tpi.co slash mobile apps and get the conversation started about how we can help you get your new application off the ground. So welcome back. Dan, after you had retired as the chief of police, you were appointed by Governor Nixon to the Ferguson Commission. Yes. And some people that are listening may not even understand what that was. There were 16 of you guys, right? It was a volunteer. You weren't paid for this. But what was the Ferguson Commission and what was the purpose and the mission behind it? You know, really the purpose and the mission behind it was Governor Nixon wanted to collect a diverse group of people that represented the diversity of St. Louis Mm -hmm. to really think about how we could reshape our community, our region, and what are the things that we need to do to progress to make St. Louis and the region the best that it could be. You know, I think a lot of people thought it was limited to the Mike Brown incident, but it was much more than that. It was looking at education. It was looking at economic opportunity. It was looking at housing, transportation, all of those things that you really need for a community to thrive. Mm -hmm. And really the goal was to reach out to each corner of the St. Louis region and hear from people directly about what they thought would be the best pathway forward for the St. Louis region. And for me, it was one of the greatest experiences that I've ever had, being able to listen to so many different people and their ideas about how we can make St. Louis really great for everyone. It was a lot of pain and anger and comments about what we needed to do. But out of that, you know, all of that sort of constructive conflict, I believe, Mm -hmm. came some really good ideas and a blueprint for how to move forward in the St. Louis region. Right, for the future, yes. I so agree, and I just remember so much of it, you know, because of our sunshine law and the transparency of government, the promise that we had to the Missouri citizens, right? You guys really were just so transparent and open and collecting where they are. What what does a day in the life look like for you and how can we improve that? Yeah, so. I think that was so important. Um, Starsky Wilson and Rich McClure were both the co-chairs of the commission and they really did an excellent job as, as leaders. I think from the starting point, they wanted to make sure that this was sort of a living document that didn't die and had mm-hmm. a legacy. And so they started with the premise of how do we make sure that this lives on, right? Um, and one of the, the goals and the ways in which they did that was to be transparent, to make it something that was not really the 16 members of the Ferguson Commission. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be... The people's document. And I think that was reflected. There are many commissions that have started, and of course, oftentimes the final document is placed on a shelf. And I think the reason for that is that it isn't the people's document. It's a group of people who've gotten in the room and decided (laughs) this is the way that we're going to move forward. And, you know, the Ferguson report was anything but that. I still see that people are using it every day as a guide 
whether it's, you know, a private organization, a public organization, I think everyone still uses it as a as a way of saying, hey, are we doing the things that the community has said that we needed to said do? That we needed sure. To do. Yeah. No, I love that. It's kind of that guidepost right. like you talked about before. So let's talk about you're the executive director for Regis, which stands for? The Regional Justice Information Service. And some people in our listening audience may not even understand what Regis is or even know that there is a Regis. Can you talk a little bit about the mission of Regis? We often talk about regionalism in St. Louis, and there are a lot of good examples of that, and, and we want to move forward and doing more. But Regis is one of the hidden gems in terms of regional collaboration that's been around for almost 40 years. It's formed by St. Louis City and County, and the whole idea of Regis was to share criminal justice information across boundaries. And so we house and collect uh, a lot of the criminal justice information in the St. Louis region and also in the Kansas City region. Mm -hmm. Uh, That would be jails, courts, law enforcement information, prosecutor information, It's used in two ways. I mean, of course, we develop custom applications for operations. So if an officer wants to write a ticket or arrest, booking, moving a case through the court system, uh, those applications have been developed by Regis. But it's also a a platform for agencies to share information, Mm -hmm. right? Yes, which is huge, isn't it? It's extremely important in law enforcement. So we've been around for 40 years, and... um, you know, working in the community. So it's still in that space of public service that I'm in, but Mm -hmm. I'm I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. What you're doing. And Dan, I'm just thinking, you know, technology really can help improve the whole experience, can't it? And the outcomes of police officers and the criminal justice system. It truly can in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Of course, it can help in terms of public safety, where we are keeping people safer. But I think the other thing that people don't understand with technology is that it also allows for greater fairness within the process as well. Because there is just the movement of information through the system. If that is more efficient, people get a fair trial. They're not held in custody longer than they need to be. There are a lot of aspects of technology that not only lead to better enforcement and public safety, but a more equitable criminal justice system as well. Yeah. I've got a friend, Dan Roberts, who says that technology is the engine (laughs) of all businesses. And so you think about, you know, we know what happens when when something does not have an engine. It doesn't go very fast. So you're able to go much faster and certainly more efficient and effective. It's more effective when you can add technology in there. So that's precisely what you're doing now, which is wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about something extra. Tell me about somebody in your life that had a something extra, and what do you think that something extra was? How did that play out in that person's life? Well, I I did speak a little bit about my father, and, you know, and I think about leadership. He is really my example of leadership. He's really been a public servant all of his life. I mean, he started out as a firefighter, and even during that time, he was involved in city politics, involved in the Boy Scouts. He managed a softball team. There's just so many different things he did in a leadership role that really gave me an example of, and this is the motto of my, my school, men for others. I mean, I think that's really the role that my father played in his life and the example that he gave me. And really, that's the the model of 
my Jesuit high school is men for others. And men so if, if I, I had to that. give something extra, that would be what resonates with me. Mm-hmm. It was not about him, was it, Dan? No, and it, it really has never been about him. I mean, I think at many points in his career, he probably could have done something in the private sector. Not that not mm-hmm. the private sector is not for others, sure. but he could have just gone and made a whole lot more right, money. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I think his life was really centered around this public service. And not that you can't do that from a private sector standpoint, but certainly in, in his life, I think that's what it his mission was about. Mm-hmm. Well, he certainly set a great example, didn't he? For, I think so. <laughs> for you and for your older sister and, uh, you know, for many others out there that his life has touched. So thank you so much. He sounds like a great man. So, Dan, talk to me a little bit about a particular board. You're on several boards, but one board in particular that's very close to your heart that you are chairing an initiative for is Big Brothers Big Sisters. Can you talk a little bit about that? So when I was chief, there were so many different times where organizations would come to us and say, we really think it would be great for the police department and the community if officers served as mentors. It was always something that I thought was a great idea. And so we developed a a partnership with Big Brothers Big Sisters to build a program where officers could be mentors to young men and young women. And we have really developed that into going beyond just law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So our, our new effort is big responders, meaning that medical workers, military, firefighters, and police are thought of in our communities as leaders Mm -hmm. and people who are looked up to. And I think they're great examples for young people to aspire to. And so um, we're kicking off a new program with Big Brothers Big Sisters. I'm the chair of it. It's called Big Responders. And we're really just looking for, you know, military, law enforcement, firefighters, EMS personnel who want to be mentors to young people. Mm-hmm. And, and you said there's what a thousand over a thousand. There's over a thousand kids who are waiting are for waiting for uh, that relationship for that relationship to happen. Mm-hmm. And you know, oftentimes people think that it takes a lot of time, but it really doesn't take a lot of time to invest in a young person. You're investing in the future. Are you not, Dan? You really I mean, are. it's an investment that is just uh, the ROI is priceless. And on once those kind of investments. you make that connection, it's contagious, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's hard to not be invested. And so I've got a little uh, Amante, you got a little, <laughs> <laughs> who is a great young man. He goes to uh, Lions uh, Middle School. You know, when we first started out, uh, my wife and I co-mentor. You know, you think, oh, it's going to take a lot of time, but it really doesn't. I mean, mm-hmm. a couple hours out of the month, and then it ends up being more than that. Because, sure, because you want to spend time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that all the time. You know, so many times you think, oh, you know, I'm giving, but really you get more than you give. Absolutely. <laughs> so if someone in our listening audience is a first responder or if they're not a first responder and what you're saying about Big Brothers Big Sisters is really resonating with them, how would they get involved, Dan? You can go to the website, Big Brothers and Big Sisters of Missouri. There's a, a portal to, to give your information and we'll, we'll start the process. So certainly we want first responders, but anyone who is interested in being a, a big to a, a young man or a young lady 
please go on the website and uh, give us your information. Absolutely. Well, very good. Well, I hope that portal is flooded <laughs> with with people that want to do that because it's such a wonderful thing that you're Great. doing there. Thank you. Dan, this has just been my delight to have you here today. I can't wait for our listeners to hear your story. And uh, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Our show today is executive produced by Brian Muncy. Our technical producer is Daniel Williams. Something Extra with Lisa Nichols is a Technology Partners production. Copyright Technology Partners, Inc. 2019. For show notes or to reach out to Lisa, visit tpi.co slash podcast. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen. 